podcast by Agile Coaching Roundtable ACRT. This is a conversational and interview-based podcast channel where we interview agile practitioners, trainers, and coaches that share their experience, wisdom, and insights regarding all things agile. Hi, I'm Ramya Shastri. I'm Vivek Kuntoji. We are your host for the podcast by ACRT. So let's begin. If you are listening to our podcast for the first time or have not yet subscribed to our podcast channel, hit the follow button on your podcast streaming app now and give us the rating. Also, if you wish to contribute to Agile community, share this episode with your friends and colleagues as well. Are you an Agile practitioner who is puzzled where to begin in terms of choosing the right delivery approaches? Do you want to understand better ways of decision making or learn a sense making tool? Kinevin Framework in detail, then stay tuned to today's episode on the topic Utilizing Kinevin Framework for Choosing Delivery Approaches with our guest Dave Snowden, where he explains Kinevin Framework with different anecdotes and examples from his experience. Dave is a keynote speaker, author, creator of the Kinevin Framework, founder and chief scientific officer at the Kinevin Company and originated the design of SenseMaker the world's first distributed ethnography tool. His work is international in nature and covers government and industry looking at complex issues related to strategy and organizational decision making. He has pioneered a science-based approach to organizations drawing on anthropology, neuroscience and complex adaptive systems theory. So without much ado, let's welcome Dave Snowden. Hello Dave, uh, welcome to the podcast by Agile Coaching Roundtable. It's a great honor and pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, despite your uh, late night flights and uh, busy schedule, thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's a pleasure. Okay, uh, to uh, begin with, uh, today we want to have a conversation uh, regarding uh, the uh, famous uh, Kinevin Framework and also uh, want to understand how can uh, leaders benefit using Kinevin framework in decision making or uh, leading uh, their teams or organization in general. So to begin with, uh, I would uh, like to understand a basic thing uh, that what is a sense making model? Could you explain uh, what is sense making uh, model for our audience? Um, okay, so we call it a framework, not a model, and that's an important mm-hmm. distinction. So a model seeks to represent the world, yeah, and that's very difficult to do, whereas a framework says there are these perspectives through which you can look at something. So Kinevin, at its heart, I mean, it, it has three layers when we explain it, right? The simplest way of explaining it is what's called the three plus one model. And that says there are three fundamental types of system in nature. Well, actually, there's five, but only three are relevant here, uh, maybe six, um, which are ordered, complex, and chaotic. So an ordered system is highly constrained, it's predictable. A complex system is highly connected, but that makes it less predictable. And a chaotic system has no connections. And one of the most common mistakes is people confuse chaos with complexity. The example a lot of people give of chaos is you know, trying to drive in Mumbai. 
Now, actually, that isn't chaos. That is complex. If you walk in a straight line across the road, nothing will hit you, provided you're consistent in pace, because the system is actually adjusting based on micro-interactions. So that's a complex system. It may appear complex and chaotic to others. Yeah? And we often use the metaphor between them as solid, liquid, and gas. So order is solid, complex is liquid, gas is you know, chaos, and that indicates the level of containment problems you've got. And it also gives you the concept of a phase shift. So you heat water up to 100 degrees, it doesn't become steam until you put more heat in. And in Kinevin, all of those three boundaries are phase shift boundaries. So if you shift something from being ordered to complex, you lose control, but you gain energy. And therefore you gain novelty. And that's kind of like a management decision. If you want to move something from complex to ordered, that takes a huge amount of energy and it may not be worth the investment. And so give an example on that, informal networks are complex, formal systems are ordered. Actually maintaining the two in parallel is the way you handle silos. You don't try and formalize cross-silo communication, but you build network density across them. And then the final part of basic Kinevin, sorry, and the bottom domain is if you over-constrain a system, you get catastrophic failure. Yeah, that's into chaos. The central domain everybody neglects, and that's the most important one. Um, and if you think, going back to my metaphor, the triple point, there's a point where it's equiprobable whether something becomes solid, liquid, or gas. And that's the central domain of Kinevin, which is called aporia, uh, for the Greek word, which means questions that you can't answer unless you think differently about the problem. And the basic principle of Kinevin is move into aporia, force yourself to think differently, and then decide what's ordered, what's complex, what would benefit from being chaotic, and that's a special case, and then move on from there. Oh, uh, that's, that's really amazing, uh, Dave, to put into perspective uh, how the framework is maybe uh, made or molded into uh, different segments and uh, how uh, it differs from complex to chaotic uh, uh, in that structure. Uh, but then how this framework uh, basically help leaders understand and categorize the challenges maybe that organizations face and I understand that the framework is focused or maybe specifically developed for organizations and what are the implications for you know for leaders, leaders specifically uh, to, to have it as an approach. Yeah, I think if you have a look on Google or Google Scholar, you, you will find lots of cases where people have used Kinevin in all sorts of industries. I mean, it's actually taught at military command level in all of the U.S. armed forces, right? Um, and you can see that if you look in the second book from, um, uh, God, um, um, the, the general who led the troops in Afghanistan, Kinevin was actually used in special operations there to actually understand the situation as an alternative to systems dynamics, which is overcomplicated in a complex space. Yeah, assuming all of these multiple, um, connect, you know, these multiple cause and effect relationships. But I think if you take it simple, we, well, when we move from three plus one, we then move on to the, the five domain model of, of Kinevin and then we break order into two clear and complicated. Right? Now, that is not a phase shift difference. That's a rather arbitrary decision which will vary in context. But it also makes this really important distinction between best practice and good practice. So if you're in the clear space where everything is rigidly controlled, so in the UK we drive on the left, in 
Germany, they drive on the right. That's what you do because everybody can see it's sensible, everybody buys into it, there's no dispute, that's best practice. Where you move into high dependency on experts, which is the complicated space, there you actually need to allow variation. And a big problem in organizations is they don't allow variation in that space, they try and choose one approach. And we see this driven by you know, what Gary Klein fondly calls Six Stigma, which I think is one of the best names I've ever heard for something, right? Um, and that distinction between good and bad is in its own right. But the minute you move into the complex space, there's no such thing. Because the number of combinations is so huge that using the past to determine what you do in the future is a mistake. And so what you have to do is to intervene in the system. Yeah, and you intervene in parallel, not in sequence. Uh, which is why, by the way, Scrum is a complex, a complicated movement technique, not a complex technique. Correct. Because you do multiple small things in parallel and you see what happens and then you respond. And this is what we call the AIMS framework, which we just published. So with any complex system, you have lots of what are called actants. So an actant is anything which has agency in the system. It could be people, but it could be a process. It could be a building design. And so all actors are actants, but not all actants are actors. Yeah? You have highly rich interactions and you can modify the actants and you can modify the interactions and then you need two more things, monitors to see what happens and cause scaffolding like we drive on the left, which is something you can take for granted. Right? So the whole process of managing complexity is monitoring for emergence and as good things happen, you shift energy towards them and as bad things happen, you shift energy away. There's quite an interesting metaphor here. If you look in a forest, um, forests are arbitorial, so the tree roots go down, they're, they're traceable. That's kind of like take that as a formal organization. But then there's a rhizomic structure which connects all the tree roots in a symbiotic relationship, and that's deeply entangled, and that's complex, and that might be the informal network. The fascinating thing is older trees can actually use the network to divert resources to younger trees during pieces of starvation. Now, it's not a conscious decision, it's built into the system. And you can see the same thing happening in organizations. Informal networks give you access to energy you wouldn't have through the formal system. All right? So it's that building both. And so if you're in a management role, you need the informal networks. You need to be able to handle experimental probes. You need to be able to have monitoring systems and hold a workforce monitoring is one of the things we do. So you can get real-time feedback yeah, as things are happening and then divert energy to what's working. I'll give you one more example. We're currently working with some of the development banks where it's easy to allocate 50 million, but it's difficult to allocate 100 groups of 500K. Correct. But everybody knows 100, 500Ks would make a much bigger difference. This is kind of like me picking up on Grameen Bank. That's where I got the inspiration for this one. Um, so what we do is we take 5% of the 50 million and we say if five roles which have evolved in the community agree, they can spend 500K. Uh, but one of the roles is completely anonymous so nobody knows who it is which actually gives you financial control. So that actually allows you to very quickly deploy small amounts of money and then let the 95% follow the things which work. So you're not dependent on people being able to apply for grants. Now we think that has huge implications for companies as well. So very rapid deployment to small amounts of resource, which can be time as well as money, see what works. 
then let your real investment follow the things which work rather than follow the people who are good advocates of their pet scheme. Wow, that's an amazing uh, way of uh, putting across and differentiating between uh, what happens in different uh, domains uh, from clear to uh, the uh, complex. And the best part was the example that you gave that made so much sense uh, about the uh, driving, uh, uh, the difference between the driving in UK and uh, US. So yes, I mean, uh, one of the uh, fundamental uh, things that I feel uh, why management uh, miss this vote or leaders miss this vote is most of them or especially people coming from like traditional uh, waterfall uh, ways of working they, they do not understand the fact that uh, the software development work that we are doing falls under the complex uh, domain category and not under the complicated uh, category and when they miss to understand this what they feel is, uh, okay, now since we are in this complicated uh, domain or work, let's put some export and then try to get the work done. But they don't understand there are so many unknowns uh, in complex uh, complex domain that only way that we, uh, we can uh, uh, see whether the un- uncover the unknown is through just uh, testing the hypothesis. What do you have to say yeah. on that? Is so that, that, that? Let me agree and also partly disagree, right? There's absolutely nothing wrong with waterfall. In context. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, if you look at large public transport infrastructure projects, telecoms, they have four to five year projects which are waterfall based. And I still remember working with Telstra in Australia and because nobody got promoted unless they were agile, but they knew they had to do waterfall. They created okay. one year sprints so they could pretend they were really being agile and that's sort of nonsensical. I was one of the three founders of the SDM, which is one of the three inputs into into the Agile Manifesto. We extensively use time boxes because in a multi-project environment, what matters is date of delivery, which Agile people keep forgetting. It's kind of like, well, we'll deliver it when we're ready and you've just got to accept it. Well, that's going to get you fired if I'm the CEO, right? If I've got multiple projects, I need to know I've got a date. So one complicated technique, which is very useful, if you have minimal viable product, maximum viable product, and we use jazz sessions to create those. You have minimum available resource, maximum available resource. You define roles that you want. And then people self-assemble, provided they have all the roles present into teams and commit to deliver. Now that actually using a psychological thing, if you join a team which you self-assemble, you're committed to its results. If you're allocated a team, you blame the team members. Now, what that means is I know on this date, I will get at least this for at most that. And that's actually really important in terms of business planning. And that's a complicated technique, which has complex elements. Scrum, because it does linear iterations, is in Kinevin terms, a liminal technique between complex and and complicated. Right? Uh, we have methods like triple up, well, like, um, for example, what we call trios, all right? So we use a transgenerational care, uh, young, naive, you know, inexperienced, but shit hot on the technology, if you excuse the language, right? With older, experienced systems architect or end system tester who's been around the block and knows that things don't work the way people think it does, together with the user trained to talk to IT people. And what we do is we throw 15 of those trios at a problem for two weeks and synthesize the results to go into the Scrum backlog. So the thing I think Agile needs to realize is to stop saying everything is complex because it isn't. 
A huge amount of what you do is ordered or should be ordered if you had some basic discipline about the way you went around it. And the issue is a mixed methods approach. And the problem is because Agile got driven by single framework approaches, so Scrum is a brilliant collection of methods, but it's not a universal framework. Right? And that's the problem. So, and what we've now got is people are trying to replace Agile. You know, you've got Agile 2, you've got Fast, you've got, they're all repeating exactly the same mistake. Um, but actually, interestingly, the modern ones have even got less behind them. But they don't come from an experience base. They've been cobbled together to produce training and certification revenue. Right? So Agile needs to grow up. And growing up means that different things work in different contexts. There are no silver bullets. There's no one little thing if we all adopted everything will be fine. And we've got to stop talking about agile mindsets and agile transformations because they're both <laughs> fundamentally errors. Right? Transformation in particular is the way of guaranteeing something fails if you announce a transformation project. Oh. Uh, so there's one, one important point that you did mention is we need to move over from the, the thought that agile maybe is a mindset or you know calling that word as a mindset. Would you like to talk more on that when, when we say it's fine? Yeah. What, what's, what's the concern over here? You, you can blame Peter Senge and systems thinking for this, all right? Because, <laughs> and, and that's not the whole of systems thinking, that's systems dynamics, which is, to my mind, the one bit of systems thinking which you should throw out the window. You know, we can retrieve things from cybernetics and soft systems. And so he started to use the metaphor of body, which is always dangerous because it privileges the brain and then the employees of the feet. Well, kind of like, you know, they've got some intelligence for God's sake. But it's also cognitive framing. It says it's all about the way you think. Now about 90% of the decisions you make are made by your social environment and your body, not your brain. Your brain actually only really activates deep thought if it, if it sees anomalies. On a day-to-day basis, it doesn't do anything. And mindset and mental, me and mental, computers have mental models, human beings don't. Yeah, we actually, as we scaffold a lot of our consciousness into the stories of the groups we work in, and that's fractal from society down to work group. So we're actually extremely energy efficient in the way we are a networked intelligence, not a cognitive intelligence. So we're not like a computer, we can't be programmed, so there are no mental models. Mindset then gets used as an excuse. Well, we have this wonderful agile transformation program, it didn't work. Yeah, we, we bought the safe miracle, all right? And three years later, we're having to pretend we did. We all know it didn't work, but we spent so much money we can't confess to that, which is the norm at the moment. The reason it failed is because you bastards didn't have the right mindset. Blames <laughs> the individuals, all right? Now, the reality is, mindset is, you know, the way you think about a problem is an emergent property of actions over time. And this is the constant confusion of systems thinking of emergent properties of having causality. So people see that people who are innovative, creative, so they think if they make people creative, they will produce innovation, and it's nonsense. Because creativity and innovation both come from starvation, pressure, and perspective shift. They're actually both emergent properties. So we now talk about what are called the three A's, and these are things you can actually manage. So one is agency. Yeah, so what agency do act dance in the system have? And it comes back to that acting concept, yeah? The other is affordance, this comes from biology, and this is what the new S-Stripe mapping framework does, is it maps where you can actually do anything. It doesn't start with where you want to be, it says, what can we actually change? Which is a much better starting point. So that's the affordance. 
an assemblage, this is Deleuzian epistemology, but we can make it simple. It's the the way in which the stories in the society to which we belong form attractor wells that you can't escape from. Yeah? And those are actually important because in an organization which has been through three agile transformations, the automatic trigger when you say we're having a transformation is, oh my God, here we go again, what do I have to pretend to be this time? Yeah? So we talk about effectively agency, assemblage and affordance and say what you need to do is to manage those three. You first of all need to map them. Right? Once you've mapped them, you do micro changes. You see what happens when you do micro changes and you do them in parallel. And if they work, you do more of them. And then the whole mindset issue emerges from those micro interactions. Uh, wow, that's again uh, a beautiful uh, thought that you have shared over here. Uh, and when we're talking about transformation, obviously, you know, the leaders or the, you know, the leadership uh, plays an important uh, role over here. Uh, but when we, when talking about uh, the complex environment or maybe, uh, maybe uh, when we're dealing with certain unknowns that definitely exist and where you're talking about uh, the approach or the model uh, that we need to have, do you think that there's a certain leadership strategies or, you know, skills uh, are more effective in a particular context is, is that makes more difference over here? I think, I mean, trait-based leadership qualities, I think, is a real problem because there aren't universal traits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. I mean, I mean, you can see this, for example, in Steve Denning's book on leadership, in that he's taking people, I work with most of the people he talked with, the only thing they had in common is they were arrogant bastards who told people what to do, but that isn't <laughs> in the book, right? It's distilled into these wonderful qualities. And the same is true with the Agile book, right? These are attempts to distill recipes from a complex situation, and there aren't recipes, right? Secondly, we're actually really bad as individual decision makers. We evolved, and, and yeah, Malcolm Gradwell's Blink is a truly appalling book. Do not tell anybody in cognitive neuroscience you've taken it seriously, or you will be excluded from social communication, because rather like the crux in reinventing the organization, he cherry-picks examples to support the thesis, which is really bad research. Yeah? The reality is, individually, we're poor decision-makers. We evolved to make decisions in extended families and clans. Yeah, the maximum number of decision-makers in an extended family is about five. So it's fascinating. If you put people together in groups of five from radically different backgrounds, they will compromise. The minute you go bigger <laughs> than that, they fall back into their tribes. And if you look at really good leaders, they take people with them who complement their skills, and they're normally about three, four, five. So leadership is actually, if you look at it in practice, a distributed function. Right? And that's actually where we're starting to go with this, is to actually build those structures into the system. So, for example, in an aircraft, the crew always has a pilot. But who the pilot is can change between shifts. Absolutely. And that's starting to work to role-based decision-making, right? And that's actually more effective. And I think that that's kind of where we go. We also use the ASHEN framework, which I originally developed for knowledge management, which talks about artifact skills, habits, experience, and natural talent. We now use that to map leaders and leadership teams. Because then we say what we need is not another Fred or another Sue, but we need another combination of these action elements. And again, that changes the way you think about leadership and recruitment. It's a collective entity. And it's this complex principle. You decompose and recombine. You don't imitate or replicate. Yeah? 
or that's not the way you scale. You scale by decomposition and recombination. Wow, that's uh, that's so amazing, and it makes so much sense. Uh, and the uh, best part is what you mentioned is uh, the pilot. Uh, uh, depending upon the who pilot is, uh, uh, everything else changes, right? So that's exactly what uh, we also say, uh, whether we practice agile or scrum or uh, basically dealing with any teams as leaders. What we say is that uh, obviously the way we approach thing as an individual. Our uh, or based on the dynamics of the team is what should our approach say uh, approach change and if we are trying to imitate what we have uh, what approach we had taken for our earlier teams then definitely we are going to fail because same approach might not work because this is now new set of people and new uh, uh, teams uh, that they they are coming from different backgrounds so is that uh, correct understanding that uh, we do. One of the one of the strengths of Scrum is it realised that roles were important, so it defined roles. Right? I think one of the mistakes it made is to create what should have been a temporary role as a permanent one. Right? So, for example, Scrum Master or Agile Coach. Yeah, you know, the whole point about a coach is you should be independent of them pretty fast. So, I mean, one of things which has just happened. I was in Copenhagen last night. You're seeing mass layoffs of Scrum Masters. Because nobody can see what they're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, okay, they're coaching the team that has value, but you have to have productivity. So I think role-based works, but you have to think about the perception of the role, and you also have to recognise that industry goes through cycles. So in a recession, somebody who isn't productive, it doesn't matter how they can argue that they're making other people productive, they're on that list and they'll disappear. Right? That's just the way, sorry, I've lived in corporate strategy. You don't get time to be nice about this. You've got to save some costs. You do the easy approach. Yeah? You draw up spreadsheets, you draw a line, and that's it. Right? So recognizing that that front is key. I say, I think the problem is that because Scrum tried to be universal rather than specific technique, it didn't think about different roles in different contexts. So the example I gave of building the backlog. Yeah, it's easy to train a user to talk to IT people. Yeah, it's difficult to train IT people to understand users. Yeah, you put them users together with experienced and inexperienced IT people in parallel teams. A, you build a network across the user population, which will make you seem more valuable because you can use that network when things go wrong. But also, you're bringing diversity into the system, so you're having temporary roles as well as permanent roles. Yeah. Now I think that's people need to get much more sophisticated in this, and actually looking at things like the army and the airline industry is a good way of seeing how this works. Because the army assume, yeah, they don't assume they're going to get brilliant people. This is the classic HR mistake. Mistake. We will only recruit the best. That's rather like one of our former prime ministers who said he wanted all schools to be above average, uh, which rather indicated his wasn't in terms of basic mathematical ability. Right. That we went to Eton.、Um, so what you actually want is that ability, yeah,、um, to actually make ordinary people extraordinary through process. That's what military environments do, and they do it through process. But the roles can change instantly. So a weapon sergeant in the Singapore Army has authority over a general in respect of their weapon. People forget this. Military models are hugely adaptive. And they can delegate command without loss of authority, and they can adjust very quickly in different contexts. 
So I think, you know, if you look at it, scientific management, which everybody decries, but nobody knows what the hell it is, they've just decided it's a bad thing, actually worked off a military model. And Taylor actually was humanizing the workforce, if you look what came before. When people criticize Taylorism, they're actually criticizing business process re-engineering the first manifestations of systems thinking. Yeah, which tried to dehumanize the workplace and take an engineering model of management, not a military model of management. And when I taught leadership with Peter Drucker, which I did on three glorious occasions, right? One of the things we said is there's a huge amount in common between scientific management and complexity theory because both of them recognize human judgment. Whereas systems thinking tried to remove human judgment and make everything into an engineering framework. And so some of my work, I was arguing this in the 80s, all right, is that people are objects too. Yeah, uh -oh. and object orientation is not the same thing as microservices. So if you look at it, people have inheritance, they have polymorphism, you can define input outputs. You can start to build systems in which crews, that's combinations of roles, actually have function within the system. Yeah, so you can output from a technology into a human process and output back again. That actually gives you far more flexibility in design than trying to automate everything. And now we can add the third component, which is AI. But then you have to think really strongly about your training data sets because actually AI is, you know, the training data sets are never epistemically balanced. And you've got to think about that and you've got to think about the application. And you've also got to think about the consequences because if human beings don't go through the processes which AI can now do more effectively than them, how do they actually develop the higher cognitive capacity anyway? I had this big argument with Sam Polizano once he wanted to get rid of middle management. And I said, where the hell do you think senior management come from? Yeah, if they don't go through that process, they don't develop the higher cognitive skills. Yeah, and that's what we need to start thinking about. We need to start thinking about a balanced ecosystem. Wow, uh, so many uh, uh, questions from uh, the last uh, conversation itself. So uh, definitely uh, one is uh, you spoke about uh, system thinking, right? So can you uh, maybe elaborate more on uh, system thinking and uh, complexity? Okay, so I mean, first of all, systems thinking and complexity have some overlaps, but they come from different origins. Yeah, complexity starts with three body problem, it goes on with biology, it's chemistry, it's primarily natural science, right? I say there are some interactions, but most of us would, for example, think that Gregory Bateson is much more in the complex world than the systems thinking world. But if you take systems thinking, there's three dominant groups. One is systems dynamics, right? And that's barely known through Senge's simplification of Foster's work, yeah? Um, and that says we got these things, we can draw causal loops, we can build more and more complicated diagram, yeah? And you end up with a famous example in Afghanistan where the general takes one look at it and says, well, if we ever understand that, yeah, we won the war, right? Because it's an analyst framework and it's, and it's, the point is there isn't that sort of causality yet within the system. I mean, that was Stan McChrystal, the name I forgot earlier, so I'll have to apologize for him profoundly on that. Um, so that was systems dynamics, and I say I think that's had its day, right? Um, A, because the modeling is much better. When Forrester did that, it was brilliant. It was the first time we actually modeled a whole system. But now we've got agent-based simulation, we've got AI, we understand actants, we've got the whole Santa Fe Institute. So complexity has moved simulation on into a whole different realm from that approach, right? But it's still it's taught. Uh, soft systems with Peter Chaplin, which is where I came from, that still has utility, 
because it uses visualization and abstraction, which we now know is important. It was also Lancaster University, like I was, so there's a thing on that. The trouble is it doesn't scale. It's a workshop technique, it doesn't scale. Right? But if we take those principles, there's things we can do it. And then cybernetics is the problem child. Um, I personally don't think Beer would ever have invented VSM if he'd known about complexity theory. And this is the thing everybody keeps getting wrong, like double loop learning, all right? I mean, kind of like, well, when it came out, it was a good idea. But now we know more, science progresses, and it doesn't mean that we don't respect what happened in the past, but we need to move on, yeah? So I, I don't see any value in VSM because it's a complicated approach in a complex domain. But the pattern language approaches you see with Alexander, with Patrick's work, for example, on strategy, that's hugely valuable, but only if you break it down to a final level of granularity. At the moment, it's too coarsely grained, so it creates too much structure. Yeah? So I think what some of us are now trying to start to say is, look, complexity has this different strand. It knows that granularity is key. These things have value, so how do we get this synthesis and integration? But please stop calling complexity a subset of systems thinking, because it isn't. And the other is, stop talking about seeing systems holistically. Because if you say that, that just shows how ignorant you are. You can't see a system holistically. You can put monitors in place so what the system is capable of becomes visible to you. But if you think you can see a system holistically, then all you're doing is imposing your, your limited vision of what's possible onto something and destroying your capacity to see weak signals and opportunities. Wow. The, the last sentence especially uh, that you mentioned about that, uh, the uh, we say that we know the system enough holistically and then we try to put our limited knowledge to it and try to bring in some sort of uh, kind of a methods or approaches uh, to uh, uh, to make sure that we crack that system and this is how it is going to work and only to figure out that that was another hypothesis that went wrong. Yeah, and I think there's a key principle on this is what people don't do is they don't map the territory before they start the intervention. Now we know from a whole body of research that human beings are incapable of doing an objective situational assessment if they've already got an idea of what they want to do. So if you start off with objectives, either overt or covert, all right, fundamentally people will assess the situation to support their favourite action. So for example, what we do in SDRAM mapping is we stop that. And we say, you know, what are the constraints, what are the constructors, we map them onto a grid between energy cost of change and time to change. Nobody can gain that by determining output because we've dropped the granularity right there. Then we identify the things which can't change because they took too much energy and time. The rest is the affordance space. And then we focus on people on micro-interventions to change the energy gradient so the things they might want are easier, but they'll find out in discovery. Right? So that's a pre-process, which is actually taken off faster than Kinevin did. Right? Now, the principle of that is understand the situation as objectively as possible before you do an intervention. What actually happened with systems thinking is people start off with an off-site workshop led by expensive consultants. They create a vision of the future, <laughs> they write it down, and like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, they present it on tablets of stone and nobody's allowed to change it. Right? That's actually the, the worst way of engaging employees and the worst way of reducing risk. Yeah, you, no military person would start without a map. What's the territory? Where are the enemy disposed? What can we do? Right? How do we discover it? We'll send out five patrols and see who doesn't come back. We know the enemy of it. 
right? And so on, right? And I think that inability to separate situational assessment for action, that came out of this belief, and you see it in Senge, right? The popular ends of system thinking said, the way you cope uncertainty is you define objectives and let people self-organize. The trouble is, in a complex system, you can't define objectives because there are too many possibilities. Objectives produce perverse outcomes. So OKRs are a complete disaster in our job. Yeah, because what they, they're okay in the complicated domain, but they're a disaster in the complex domain because what they do is we have to achieve the OKR. And it's, it's Goodhart, it's Stratton's variation of Goodhart's law. The minute a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a measure. Yeah, because people focus on target achievement and then they're not open to discovery on the pathway. So one of the other things we say, the big difference between complexity and systems thinking, well, one is that in complexity systems don't have to have boundaries. In systems thinking, systems always have boundaries, right? It's the only way their ideas would work, right? Um, but the big one is in complexity, you start journeys with a sense of direction and journeys in parallel, yeah, not in sequence. Whereas in systems thinking, you start with a goal. Now, if you start journeys with a general sense of direction, you're open to novelty on the pathway. If you have goals, you ignore novelty because you're on the one-year plan, the two-year plan, the three-year plan, the OKR target for this quarter, all of those things, right? And it's just bad science to give outcome-based targets in a complex world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, since you talk, you spoke about the war, like a situation where we initially send out, you know, a, a, a small troop to just identify where, where the locations are, or maybe just to get the understanding of what the enemy is coming up with, maybe just to give that sense of where or what kind of yeah. weapons they do have in, in terms of, so that's again, you know, um, more of a, a probe kind and then sensing what the situation is. And in, you got it. Yeah, and, and in that, in, in similar situation when sense making is a critical aspect of any situation, maybe again in a complex environment, how can leaders enhance, enhance their sense making skills and what tools or practices okay. can assist in this process? So, three things. I mean, one of the other ways to look at a complex system is to compare a Gaussian distribution with a Pareto distribution. Yeah, so in a Gaussian distribution, a bell curve, you can eliminate the outliers. In a Pareto distribution, the outliers are fat tails, so you can't eliminate them. And a Gaussian distribution works because everything is random. The minute you connect things, the distribution has become Pareto. Right? So in the tails of a Pareto distribution, you don't get repetition between past and future states. So you can't use an inductive approach. You can't use cases. You can't use the past to determine the future. Right? And that's where you switch into what's called abductive approaches. You know, logic, deductive, inductive, abductive. Abductive is all about intuitive leaps. And that actually matches in with feeding strategies. Animals do a sort of random walk, then they do a sudden leap, then another random walk. Right? Because that optimizes, optimizes feeding. Right? Human beings do the same sort of thing. So in the tales of a Pareto distribution, you need processes which will reveal what is possible you can't determine in advance. So two things on that. One is the one I just gave you. So we use teams of three or teams of five. We distribute decision-making authority into those, which is not the same as delegating. We see what works and that tells us where to put our resources. That saves us a huge amount of time and energy. The other is, and I've been sea level most of my life, right? You, you sit at your desk and 
five teams come in with stuff they've been working on for six months, they've got it researched, the PowerPoint is perfect. They all present these ideas and you're meant to decide which is right in five minutes and you've got no bloody idea what they're talking about, all right? They're all experts. <laughs> yeah, so you tend to go with, oh, that goes, guys were right last time, and I can't stand that guy, or to be honest, most of your decisions are political. If that goes through, I'm going to lose status. Yeah, politics is really matters at sea level. Everybody forgets this strategy is all politics and it's dirty, right? What you do instead is say, okay, you know, you four are coherent, you're not coherent. Yeah, so that's that's a bad idea. All four of you, here's a small amount of money, go away and do an experiment and you do them in parallel. See what works. That actually saves you a huge amount of t- trouble at the sea level. Yeah, you don't have to do commission second research if it's a coherent idea and it's easy to agree that something is coherent. You don't have to agree it's right, but you can agree it's coherent. Yeah, go away and do something small, we'll see what happens, but you've got to do it in parallel. Uh, one of the reasons for that is a thing called the Hawthorne effect, if you know that. Okay, so this is 1920s scientific management. They were looking at worker productivity in the Hawthorne cable manufacturers in upstate New York. And so they increased lighting levels and people became more productive. Now, in the modern world of Agile, they would now publish a book called Light the Secret to Productivity and sell certification courses <laughs> in how to switch on lights, right? Then they had some pretense to be real scientists, so they lowered the lighting level and people became more productive. And what they found is if you do something novel and pay attention, it always works the first time. So pilot projects are actually disastrous because they're always going to work, but they won't scale. That's why in Kinevin we say you do smaller pilots in parallel and you make sure there's contradiction between the pilots because then you explore the space. And by the way, that costs you a lot less money than more research and executive time deciding what's right. Uh, That's again... uh... Uh, an amazing uh, to put across uh, the thoughts in terms of how to approach or how to have that sense and approach kind of a uh, uh, you know approach towards anything that we do uh, in terms of uh, project management activity to to in specific to the uh, software world that we can say and again uh, to a leading uh, question to that is uh, effective sense making or maybe sense making is crucial in leadership you know uh, and what methods uh, can help leaders uh, enhance uh, their sense uh, making skills when dealing with complex problems specifically? I've just given you some. So distribute dealing with the problem into small groups working in parallel. Either a limited number of teams or actually mm-hmm. a broad group. Um, that's the AIMS framework. Change the actions, change the action interactions, monitor what happens. Yeah, think about your scaffolding. I mean, there are different types of scaffolding. So, for example, there's a big difference between an endoskeleton and an exoskeleton in nature. So, you can never get the giant ants of horror movies. Because an exoskeleton in Earth's gravity can't support something bigger than, I think, about a meter and a half before it breaks. Whereas an endoskeleton, which we have, can support huge sizes because it provides a basic coherent structure, but it doesn't contain. So a lot of companies, and this is some of the work we do, is how do you define the scaffolding? All right? Is it exto? Is it endo? Is it what's called a micro lattice? Yeah, which is where you put a healing lattice over a burn. It's a nutrient lattice, and it gives us the scaffolding around which the skin can grow, but then it dissolves into the skin. Yeah, or steel scaffolding. These are scaffoldings designed to move once the system has enough stability. So that's what you also make a decision as an elite, right? What scaffolding do we need at the point? 
you know, do we need it rigid? Do we need it flexible? Do we need it to go away? And that, again, that was a big mistake Agile made. They confused the scaffolding with the method. Yeah, you know, scaffolding something with Scrum Masters up front is critical, but basically they need to dissolve into the system. I mean, not physically, you understand, but you know what I mean, right? So again, it's in, in leadership, you, you're working with other people, you're managing an ecosystem. You want to only, and energy minimization is key. Energy is money, resource, everything else. All of evolution tends for energy minimization. So if you know what has the lowest energy grade, you, you know what's going to win. You know, we're now starting to use S-drying, the S-drying framework to replace scenario planning. Because, you know, energy gradients are a better predictive capacity than a group of people sitting together for two days brainstorming ideas. Right? It's more scientific. So the key thing is, think of yourself as managing a garden if you want. Yeah, you need to keep the wildflower area because that's your source of genetic variety. If something goes wrong, you need to see where people walk before you build a patch. Yeah, I mean, to use the classic case, you need borders, you need to think about it, you need to understand the affordances. There's no point in trying to grow cactus in a paddy field, for God's sake. But some companies try and do that because they see some other companies have this huge success and they forget the context in which it worked. That was the problem with the Grameen Bank. It worked in a matriarchal community in Bangladesh. It did not work in a patriarchal community in Africa because the social affordances were radically different. So I'm not going to give you a magic bullet. I'm going to say, yeah, that this is what you're doing. You're managing something complex. And the other thing, I think, when you get into senior leadership roles, you suddenly realize you can't do anything anyway. You actually have less authority. The people with the real authority in companies are middle management. Yeah, leaders can appoint them and give them some direction and influence it, but you ain't got the bandwidth anymore to make the decisions, right? So actually, if you're trying to... One thing's, I mean, I've come across the narco twice in my life, once in knowledge management and the other in our job, right? And disagreed with him both times. But one thing he said, which was completely right, is change is middle, bottom up. You change middle management, you change junior management, and then leaders response. You do not want to be a CEO, CEO-led project. That dooms you. Yeah? Yeah, middle, bottom up is a good thing to remember. Wow, that's that's so. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I I think this is something I have uh, heard for the first time. Uh, the point that you mentioned about uh, middle bottom up. Uh, that's uh, amazing uh, point of view to look at. I'm definitely going to reflect uh, back on this. How and what can be done uh, in my uh, context or in my uh, perspective. Uh, uh, so you talked about uh, AI two time back. So. Uh, and I know that uh, you you also studied uh, philosophy, and I also uh, you mentioned that it's very easy for someone to teach Java, but what we need to uh, teach uh, people is to understand uh, humans, right? So, yep. what is your take on this entire AI thing and uh, the leadership? Well, I'm giving a good, I'm giving a major lecture on this at the conference in Washington next week, as it happens, so it's on my mind. I think there are a couple of general things. I think we've neglected the education of software engineers, right, badly. So we don't train them in ethics. And they're making decisions on a day-to-day basis with implications they've got no capability of understanding. It is actually quite significant if you go through the history of software programming. Initially, it's all women. And then home computing comes out, and that's when the men take over. 
Right? So the danger is you've got people who spent their entire life on computers. I sometimes joke about this. You've got 40-year-old misogynist males who take and ran seriously after puberty, which is grounds, as far as I'm concerned, to commit you to a mental hospital. Right? And misogyny is a real problem in the agile community. It's it's really significant right? in scary ways. In fact, we're doing some work on weak signal reinforcement in that at the moment. So you need to start to think about technology in terms of its wider implications. So when I was at school, um, I know I'm getting old when I start to say this, we were trained how to use punch card machines. And I wrote my first computer program to fake my physics practicals. I couldn't see any point in doing practicals because I already knew the answers. So I wrote a program in basic, yeah, over a 300-mode acoustic coupler to the you know, Kelston College computer room, which actually faked physics practicals and sold it to the first year six when we left, all right, because they wanted to do the same thing. Now, that was fun, right? But I still remember being told we would have a job for life if we learned how to use a punch card machine. Yeah? Oh, wow. Our headmaster also made us do RSA stage three typing, which actually for grammar school boys and girls at that time was what the hell are we doing this for? That's done by dumb people in the other school. But that was the most useful skill he ever gave me because it was a motor skill. Right? That's a much more finely grained skill. Right? Now, anything you teach kids about programming now, first of all, they're probably doing it at home anyway. Yeah, you actually is going to be out of date and the focus on STEM education is designed to create people who will be got rid of five years after leaving university. You just take the latest trash in, you exploit them like hell, you throw them out and get the new set through. Yeah, in fact, if you haven't got into a management position in IT by the time you're in your 30s, you've got a problem. Unless you're really gifted or on legacy system programs. Going on to legacy system programs is a good way of ensuring longevity because people know how important you are, right? So training in ethics, training in ethnography, training in anthropology are the key skills yeah, that we've lost in the IT profession. Yeah? And that's to the detriment of the IT because actually IT people do not like people. <laughs> want users. They want the users to appoint one person to represent them and minimize the interaction with the users when actually they need to be intermixed on a constant basis. Yes, uh, that's correct. I mean, uh, that is the whole uh, idea, right? All these, uh, all these days. I mean, the way, the more we get up in the ladder is when we understand it's all about people. And if we, uh, if we deal with uh, people in a very human way, we can get all these things done, and uh, we can do wonders together. Yeah. And remember my point. I mean, one of the things I was arguing last night, for example, at a big meter, was. Agile needs to start to use existing technology to satisfy unarticulated needs. At the moment, Agile is reacting to what people ask for, but the reality is users don't know what to ask for. You know, what they're asking for is based on technology which was maybe 20 years ago. So we need to change that dynamic and change the interaction. And I think that's the shift from manufacturing. And currently, most Agile methods use a strong manufacturing metaphor. Yeah, one of the reasons we went down the S-Drive model is to avoid flow concepts. Because mm-hmm. we basically in an estuary, the water flows in both directions, guys. Yeah, it's not always in one direction, and it may be different things you can do at different turn of the tide, for example. So I think it's much more about starting to understand that. And I said two things last night. One is start to use your own employees as a sensor network, because IT has got access to them. 
show executives how you can use your technology to help them make better decisions, find unarticulated needs where existing technology can make a big difference to productivity. All of a sudden, you become a service department and a strategic function, not a manufacturing cost center. And if you're a manufacturing cost center, that is not a good place to be in a recession. I say this as a former person who used to sell outsourcing systems for IBM and data sciences. You loved a recession because you could take everybody over, make 30% of them redundant, and you made a lot of money in bit two. Right? And when the client learned what their staff used to do for them for free, but isn't in the service level agreement anymore. Oh God, uh, that's so true. And uh, honestly, there are so many questions that are popping in my mind uh, related to uh, whatever conversation we had. But uh, we will have, uh, or maybe pause that for the next conversation in the next podcast, maybe. But for today, uh, the last question I uh, would like to uh, check with you uh, is that what advice do you have for aspiring leaders uh, looking to apply the principles of Kinevin framework in their leadership roles, uh, especially uh, in today's fast-changing and uncertain business landscape? Okay, small things in parallel, fast and user employees monitoring system. So the famous example I give on that is, you know, if you give radiologists a batch of x-rays on the final, you ask them to look for anomalies. On the final x-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule, 83% of radiologists will not see it, right? You need to find the 17% before they talk to anybody else. And you can only do that by using your employees as a sensor network in real time so you can see dominant patterns, minority patterns and outlier patterns. And you do lots of small things to stimulate the system. You stop big initiatives except in a major crisis. In a major crisis, you may have to act in a draconian fashion, but most of the time you're actually manipulating your middle management, your junior management to do lots of small things. You're creating visibility and you're letting the energy flow to things which will work rather than trying to decide in advance what the right thing is to do. Wow, that's a great piece of advice, uh, I would say. And uh, thank you so much, Dave, for joining us today. Honestly, we had like uh, questions that uh, we, we wanted to ask you, but uh, we did not follow the single question that we had, nevertheless. And we ended up talking so many things and uh, it was so interesting to understand different perspectives. I have personally learned so much from this episode. I'm sure our audiences, listeners and viewers would be learning uh, too from this episode. So thank you so much, Dave, for doing this and coming over. It's a great honor and pleasure having you on our show and uh, looking forward to have more such conversation uh, on our podcast show. Thank you so much. It was really enjoyable. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much, listeners, for listening to us patiently. We will meet you again with new episode. Till then, if you like this podcast, please do like, share and subscribe to our podcast show, the podcast by Agile Coaching Roundtable, ACRT, with Ramya Shastri and Vivek Kuntoji.